up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay, produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. Hello, this is Ralph Edwards, Acker, Warren from the Concrete Gang, and I'll be presenting a fill-in Concrete Gang show during their well-earned summer break. This is part of an ongoing series called Creatures of the Industry, and that's going to record the people who made our industry over the last 50 years as they reflect on that history and their time in it. We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face. We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place. We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains and break a couple of concrete floors to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And it's uh, good morning for another edition of Creatures of the Industry. Morning, teacher. (laughs) And today we are talking to uh, three gentlemen... (laughs) <laughs> Three gentlemen who uh, are going to have a little chat to us about the metal construction industry sector as it existed when they first came into the industry and as it's developed over probably, what, the last 50 years? So, good morning to Tommy Watson, Ralph. Danny Gardner and Noel Washington. Good, Ralph. How are we, gentlemen? Good, Ralph. So this is a trip down memory lane. And uh, I'm sure you've got plenty to tell us, but to start with, I was suggesting that perhaps we uh, talk about when and how we entered the industry. Tommy, would you like to start? Yeah, well, I uh, entered the, the metal industry. I joined the Iron Workers Union in late 1968 uh, at, a, at a, a small job at uh, PRA. I worked there for a couple of months, then I worked on a shutdown at ASR. Then I went to a shutdown at BP Refinery, worked at Monsanto, worked around the complex for probably 12 to 18 months, and then I got transferred, I was working for World Service, I got transferred to the Westgate Bridge, and everybody knows the history of the Westgate Bridge, so I've been a member of a union since 1968. Straight into uh, the Altona Complex? Straight in the Altona Complex, and, and the Altona Complex in them days was really the, the centre of the trade union movement. I mean, you had PRA, you had all the complex, you had Monsanto, Carbon Black. There was no arguments about no ticket, no start in them days. Everybody was in the union. I mean, I'm talking about thousands of workers were in the union. And every time there was a campaign, whether it be shorter hours or annual leave or public holidays, the unions always came to the complex and the complex always rose to the occasion. And it was a very militant uh, union area. And you never wandered far from home because you still live in Altona within sight of what's left of the complex. I just bought a Jag and I live in Altona. Yeah, do you want? Um, yeah, no, I've, I've, 
when, when I came from England, Dad was like, bragging. In 1961, we moved into Williamstown Hostel. Yep. And then the Just old man, Corroy Creek Road. Corroy Creek Road. And then the old man, and old girl, bought a place in Altona. And I've basically been in Altona, Williamstown, in the western suburbs since 1961. There you go. And still there. And still there. Danny, would you like to introduce your little potted history? Yeah, look, I started working as a 15-year-old uh, back in about 1964, 65. Worked in timber yards uh, in Footscray and Yarraville, where I grew up in Yarraville. And... Uh, the first real construction job that I worked on was at, uh, at the Tullamarine uh, Airport uh, back in about 1969. Was Ronald Hicks? I was his TA. <laughs> but uh, after that, I uh, went back working. I worked at uh, a store, a place called Shankley's in, uh, in Spencer Street. Worked there for a while. Then I got a job uh, working with uh, one of my mates who was a boilermaker in the Altona Complex. <coughs> So I worked for mobs like uh, Pet Chem, uh, Chemineer was another mob, if you might remember their names. Also working around uh, all the different complex, whether it was PRA, whether it was Herxt, uh, Carbon Black, I uh, worked at Monsanto. And I was working for Pet Chem uh, in North Altona with uh, one of the guys who got, sons who got killed on the Westgate, uh, Nat Little, Johnny Little got killed. I was working with Nat, Nat was an apprentice working with a boilermaker called Alan Aiken. Alan got called up, got a, got a job on the Westgate, and uh, then from there, uh, worked on the Westgate uh, for nearly four years. After Westgate, worked in Shell. Worked at Shell, uh, again, PRA, all those different places around the place. Worked for Glencray, which was another company, uh, with John Beaver, who was, I think we all know who John Beaver was in the industry. And then from there, uh, uh, Working as it was the delegate at Shell, and Tommy had already been um, working at the FIA as a as an organizer. And I think uh, I came in for a month and was there eleven and a half years. And again, I, there was no doubts that Tom must have seen something in me because I think uh, I don't think I would have been sitting here today talking about uh, experiences within the building industry, construction industry, metal trades, working as a union organizer, working for Seabus uh, and still working at 71 if it wasn't for Tommy's influence and mentoring so I, I, don't, I don't want him to give him a real big hit <coughs> but, but I think that's I think some people within the industry that you actually work with is people who are influenced in the way that you are and I think I worked at Pet Chem uh, which was a, a if you remember Tom uh, back in the Saturday or when uh, Pet Chem went broke I think the boys he had no money Silvio so Tommy and Jimmy O'Neill were the two organisers who come to the place all of a sudden all the equipment went missing and uh, the equipment came back miraculously after all the money was paid. <laughs> it was funny about that. But that was the type of stuff that used to have to happen within the, the metal trades. But uh, I had a long, long, long career and, and at the same as time I've been in the union my whole life. On the subject of being in a certain place for a long time, yeah. you were a uh, Footscray boy. Yes, I come from Yarraville. Yeah. Yes. And then you went to Shell. Yes. And then you went to Geelong. Yes. And now you're a surf coaster. Yes. <laughs> Living the life of Riley. Well, well I tell you, look, West, look uh, Geelong blokes don't like hearing this, but I live now in an outer western suburb of Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to say, and it was funny, though, when I moved down into Geelong from Ocean Grove, or from Yarraville, Ocean Grove, back and lived in Newtown, and then people say, you live in Newtown, I said, oh, yeah, top 
I used to say to people, you know, I live in the working class area of Newtown. No one used to correct me, so there isn't any. And Washoe, you like to do a little intro? Well, just down the road from you're Newtown. you're a Toronto boy, yeah. aren't you? Well, I was born um, and raised in Geelong West, which is a long way down the road from Newtown, let me tell you. It's down the bottom of the hill. Yeah, cross, cross the road. There is a competition going on <laughs> so, here, folks. after a good Catholic upbringing... Um, I went wandering around the country, worked on various, um, mainly for shires, the Mildura Shire, Proserpine Shire, on um, on Sybil's type construction and concrete work. I come back to Geelong around, I think it was 1979, thereabouts, 78 perhaps. Tommy was already in the iron workers working for them. I think Danny was too. Yeah, yeah. I originally started as a TA at Shell for uh, Denham Engineering or Denham Tooling, as they were called in them days, on maintenance. Then, for a period of time, on the construction of the polypropylene plant, and that was probably our first uh, interaction um, because there was an issue at the time about um, companies just plonking groups of blokes on on mm. on the site to get jobs and then pissing them off. And Tommy had a campaign. They were on the platformer, which was there were two construction jobs, BT. yeah, running concurrently. So it was a bit of a barney about anyone coming on the site had to get a week in lieu of notice. I don't think there was any severance on that. There no, might have been, no. but it was very minor. Mm. Uh, so that was my first interaction with these two guys. Um, after that um, project, which you know was a real eye opener about what unions can do to protect their members. I don't think there was deaths on those jobs, but there were certainly some serious injuries. Um, I then went back to uh, maintenance um, and shutdowns at Shell, I think for a couple of years. And then I was uh, shanghaied in in similar terms for six weeks as a temporary union official. Yeah, shanghai. Shanghai. <laughs> um, in about 1981, I started as a temporary organiser for the ironworkers. You operate some labour hire company for the union, were you? No, you were stuck in the decks. <laughs> but he didn't tell us that until years later. It was selective recruiting. I'm building a team. <laughs> oh, there you go. Right, now, let's just sort of talk about what the industry was like when you first came in. Because you've mentioned a few things, including, you know, serious accidents the nature of the work, the culture of the work, but what a lot of people don't quite understand is it was a very transient type of existence and people used to get on the uh, the shutdown cycle and they wouldn't work a whole year. They would work from shutdown to shutdown and then they'd be off, but they'd make good money while they were working. And it was just a question of whether you could get on to the next big shutdown but that's all changed too not only in, in, in the old town of complex shutdowns used to go four six maybe eight weeks mm. i worked on a shutdown at pp western port went for 12 weeks when we pulled the bundles out they were all yeah. cracked in that so if you could get on three shutdowns a year or maybe four you you were very highly paid in them days because the shutdowns were all 12 hour days seven mm. days a week and, and they were well organised, unions pay, union rate of pay. So if you could work on three or four, and there was hundreds and hundreds of workers who didn't work full time, who worked three or four jobs every year, 
But over the last 20 years, the shutdowns were getting smaller and smaller because mm -hmm. of new technology. Mm -hmm. And then they were putting in new vessels, new tanks, <coughs> new, and it was a completely... So the shutdowns started to diminish. And the, and the amount of people relying on shutdowns diminished too. And I think it's got to the stage now where the Harley, you, you, you really have shutdowns. I just want to talk about one thing. When you introduced us, you, you talked about mixed metal. Mm. Mixed metal is a very new terminology. Yes. Very That's new. Right. I mean, Washar and I will tell you the very first mixed metal job because we, we did it, right? Prior to mixed metals, when we were with the ironworkers, the ironworkers and the AWU and the builders' labourers had more demarcations than any other unions in this country. Mm. Uh, High Court, Supreme Court, Federal Court, picket lines on jobs, all sorts of arguments. So two, there was two scenarios. When we were with the iron workers, we used to talk to the, the, the company, the boss, and try and get the building trades finished, and a week later the metal trades would come in because there'd be no demarcation. Sometimes you couldn't do that. Sometimes the iron workers and builders' labourers worked next to each other, and sometimes there was demarcation arguments. When we, the three of us, started with the FEDFA, mm then we, we changed that practice and then we started to have mixed metal jobs. And the very first mixed metal job was the Herald and Weekly Times. The very first one. When they built the Herald and Weekly Times near the Westgate Bridge. Yes, Fisherman's Bridge. That's the very first one. There wasn't one before that. And we didn't have a mixed metal agreement. Washoe and I walked in and we signed the AWU people putting in the machinery and uh, all, all the stuff to print papers. And an organiser called Sam Wood from the AWU walked up one day, yelled and screamed, and never seen him again. Never came back. And we and those people then, then we started to create a mixed metal agreement. Then we started creating mixed metal rates of pay, and we actually eliminated the AWU completely from that industry. But that, of course, was following a fairly significant event in the history of iron workers, a certain election. Mm. Yes, yes. Where, uh, shall we say, you didn't exactly pull the winning uh, stroke on the day, but in the end, all three of you went away from the FIA, or FIME as it then was, and, and then became part of the construction unions like the FEDFA, and the people who you had worked with actually went with you. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's something that people don't yeah. really understand. There was a time where the organisations had one series of relationships, the FIA versus the BLF and mm. all the rest of it, and, and Fedfor was not a big construction union. It really basically only covered a small group of, of mobile crane operators yeah. in terms of construction. But after that election, the world was turned upside down and a whole lot of things... Let me as just you say, say something before Danny talks about the election. At the time, we didn't realise that election was so important to the CFMU. Yeah. That election was the future of the CFMU, <coughs> us getting defeated. Mm. Because we got picked up by the FEDFA, the CFMU, and we got picked up for one reason, to knock off the AWU and create a mixed metal mm -hmm. environment. Yeah, look, I think uh, what Tom said about uh, recruiting, back in 79, I think Tom started in 1978 at the Ironworkers as a full-time official, uh, and I think the reason that happened was 
Just, we, we talked about elections a number of times, even when we were working on the mm-hmm. Westgate. We even talked about when we were on the Westgate, we'd go to the FIA meetings, and at some stage we tried to organise a division within the FIA as a construction division. And we used to meet at Trades Hall on a, on a regular basis, and the FIA would uh, take down the notes, and they'd take the minutes, and they'd say, we'll take it off to the National Council, and we'll come back to you. Well, they'd come back every time and say, National Council won't accept that uh, uh, that, that position, and uh, it'll continue on as normal. I think around about 1978, just before the, an election, Tommy went to Hollowell, Harold and Short, and said, look, if we don't get what we want this time, we're going to run a campaign against you. And even at that time, they were really unpopular within the members of the, of the union, rather than, but the employers wanted to support them in those positions. So they really shit themselves. So next mm-hmm. thing you know, and Tommy was only talking about in those days, was, was the management committee, not, not actually coming in as a union official. They offered the job as a, a union organiser. Because my foreman was on the yeah. management committee, Stu. Stu. John my Stoop. foreman. I was a shop yeah. steward. My foreman the was on the management committee. My foreman, the boss. He's on. The and bus. he was a drop kick. <laughs> so <laughs> at will service. So <laughs> so what happened was then, the circus. Yeah, my foreman. So Tommy gets put on, hmm. and then I started at, at Shell. Um, it was with uh, well, again. It was with EPT. It ended up being EPT. Yeah, you worked for that yeah. insulation. Insulation mob who in Sydney went end up going bloody broke electrical mob. Yeah, ended up going broke and, and EPT picked us up so we had we had Disco Dino you remember him no? yes Disco Dino and he was the boss so we, he was he was one of them but getting back to that point six months or three, about six months later position comes up uh, again just for a month I think it was Lorenz who went on, on holidays they never used to go on holidays I think the reason was they probably knew they were going to get uh, someone's going to get put in so anyway I started then we had another bloke starter, it was a bloke, remember him, Huey Carter, who absolutely fucked himself up completely with some of the stupid things he was doing. And Noel came in, then we had got, got in Gary Evans, and I think probably election before the one that we actually run, we were ready to go then, if we remember rightly. And I think it was, was it Neville, or we, we were advised... 86, yes. Yeah, we were advised that maybe hang off to the next time. Anyway, that's what we did, so... But in terms of that election, what you had, my memory, was a basic split between the activist members of the union who were basically in construction and in maintenance shutdowns, work and so on, versus the shops. And the shops were probably the bulk of the members, very... They weren't unorganised. I mean, in those days, unions were organised at all levels, but... They were not cranked up as a uh, fighting force mm-hmm. and tended to be very no. conservative and subject to pressure from employers. Like more pressure from employers, if you remember. The main ones were in those times was BHP at Westernport, Alcoa down here at Geelong, Alcoa at, Port, uh, at, uh, at Portland, uh, Sims Metal, and I think Tom tells a story about one after we got knocked off. Was it Bill Wright? You said to him that, yeah, we know how much... BHP, Sims Metal and, and Alcoa put in. What did he say to you? Sims Metal didn't give us anything. So. <laughs> and Swargans, they didn't give us anything. But I think the idea of, of, of uh, running, running the campaign and election was only 200 votes in the end. Mm. And in the end, if you carry about the 200 votes, you probably look at Western Port and probably Portland were the ones that 
Uh, Troy Valley. Valley definitely let us down. Mm. There's no doubt about that. But, but it, was, it was a simple election. Yeah. It, it was over the future direction of the union. Yeah. Mm. They thought that the metal workers were the enemy. We thought the boss was the enemy. And it was a simple argument. And, mm. and, and, and what happened is they used to get phone calls, the, the builders' labourers were on the job, they'd mm. go and sign people up. So they responded to the boss. Right, mm-hmm. and we couldn't understand. Every day of the week, we walked, we worked shoulder and shoulder with the metal workers. There was no two unions worked closer mm-hmm. than the iron workers and metal workers. There wasn't two, right? And every time we went to trades hall, ALP, ACTU, Congress, they walked one way, yeah. we walked the other, and we yelling at each other and throwing tomatoes and all sorts of things, right? And then, the, then on Monday okay. morning, you stand next to them on the stump. You know, we, we couldn't understand that logic. You know, we it, it was just about the future of the union, mm. and it was personalities too yes. within the union. Yeah, I can remember sitting at a table with Joe Reed and mm. uh, Frank Cherry, yeah. having yeah. it out with fibre makers. Yeah. But from a, at least in, inside the iron workers, um, from at least probably the mid seventies, there were there were always two distinct lines of thought. There were those who just wanted to get on with business and improved a lot of our members. Uh, and then you had people like John Ryan, Rick, Rick Brown, and others that were planted in the Iron Workers Union to become future leaders. And their political affiliations were clear. Yeah. I mean, they were affiliated with the NCC, NCCC, whatever they called themselves they at the time. Them. I mean, all I knew about the split in the ARP in the 50s was I was born in the same year, and I had about as much interest in politics but those people were imposed were given the biggest shot um, and um, they were we were told they they are going to be the future leaders of the branch and we rejected that proposition Um, and as Tommy said we worked with the metal workers every day of the week my best mate was Jim Caddy who was a metal workers organiser and um, you know the inevitable happened we were going to go in 86 um, we we met, we uh, formed up, we sought advice from people that we um, you know admired, Neville Hill and others, and they advised us not to go. Their their clear view was we weren't strong enough at the time, we didn't have the organisational uh, structure behind us, and we should wait it out. And we did until 1990, and by that stage it was unbearable, and it was going to happen no matter no matter what. And the rest is history, as they say. When we went to the FEDFA, well, when we lost that election, there was only one job going in Geelong. Both Danny and I worked in Geelong, uh, lived in Geelong, and that was the Shell Refinery. And two days after the election, we were run by the local paper, the Geelong Eddy, to tell us, or ask us, did they know that we'd been blacklisted? So two days out of the election, we'd been blacklisted off the, the only job in, in Geelong. So it's fair to say that left a little yeah. bit of a sour taste. We ha- did have an organised group for a while yeah. um, that Bob Mankell, by and large, um, got up and running. Yeah. Um, you know, and there were community pickets and all those sorts of things. Um, but um, that's the way they acted, and they relied on the employers to do that. Mm. For argument's sake, during that election... Some of our members received two or three off the very same leaflet. 
that was mailed out, and it was mailed out by the employers. <coughs> the employers were the large employers were running an election office for the for the other side. So that's the sort of shit that happened. When we went to the FEDFA, a lot a lot of members that supported us in the ironworkers and in the ironworkers election um, were clearly interested in what we were doing. And as Tommy said. We had a, there was a series of jobs. There was there was the Herald and Weekly Times. There was uh, Toyota. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some, so many others. I've, I've forgotten most of them. But a lot of those jobs and their conditions came out of the Altona complex and the, and the Shell refinery. Um, everything starts somewhere. For argument's sake, when I was at Shell on maintenance, we had lunch in a tin shed. Mm. Didn't have air conditioning didn't have inclement weather, didn't have any of those things. Um, you had to over, hand your overalls back when you got sacked or, or pay compensation. Um, those were the sorts, types of conditions that existed in the, you know, pretty much in the, that time of, you know, around uh, the early 80s. So things did change uh, a lot through the efforts of various um, people, had good shop stewards, had militant members, in those complexes and a lot of the same people then turned up on construction jobs around the place. There was um, Loyang, both A and B, both, all three of us at various stages were assigned down mm. there for various things, although somewhat different. The, um, the old um, Portland Smelter uh, was Danny's baby. Now that was a large construction project with all unions. Yep. And at the time, there wasn't the CFMEU, it was all the individual building units. Power lines. Power, Power lines, lines yeah. prior to. Yes. Um, and then there was numerous other jobs inside the complex and in other places. We simply took what we learnt inside the Altona complex and applied it more broadly. There was a difference. And like it or love them, uh, or not, the employers do have a role to play here. The other side, first of all, you had Fimey, as they were then, declared war on the CFMEU, set themselves up, supported by the Herald and Weekly Times as the alternative construction union, openly declared war, that they were going to uh, eliminate the CFMEU as it was forming up. Custer thought the same thing. Yeah, Custer mm. thought exactly the same thing. fucking Indians And but the problem is, and like Chief Sitting Bull, you're still in the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Bob Smith, <laughs> even if you're working for Buffalo Bill, <laughs> Bob Smith, who had this sudden rise to infamy, prompt would promise everything, but could deliver fuck all. Mm. We, on the other hand. Had made no promises, just delivered. Just delivered. Well, yeah. it was, I think, known that we could communicate with the members, and if we were on the stump, yes, we'd have debates with people, but we would deliver on what we said. So an agreement would stick, and that was of some value to the employers who, for some reason, wanted their job completed on reasonably on time. So clearly, that was the difference. They promised the world. Uh, and delivered fuck all. We, on the other hand, with support of members, a lot of shop stewards uh, and a lot of activists, uh, were relatively quickly able to break them. Okay, I'm Ralph Edwards and I'm presenting Creatures of the Industry, a fill-in show during the Concrete Gang's well-earned summer break. So can I just digress for a second? 
In terms of the election, forgetting the result, mm. but in terms of the election and the support you built, it wasn't simply about politics. The no. politics of the other side was reflected in how they operated as a union. Yeah. Other words, they were sucks. Yeah. But in terms of bringing people with you, there's obviously a basis in how construction and maintenance work yeah. was done that produced a different mentality among the members with different expectations. The three of us have often talked about that, right? Mm. And the three of us, well, there was a lot more of us, yeah. never regretted that election for one second. Mm. Regretted the result, but never the election. Mm. It was the right thing to do. We took on New South Wales, right wing, DLP, NCC, and the yeah. biggest employers in this country. Mm. And the members could see that. And when we got defeated, and, we, and Danny said, we got defeated by a few hundred votes. So like, it wasn't a massive defeat. The members, certainly in the construction manufacturing area, forget about BHP, could see the result. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for leadership. And they never got it from the people who, who won the election. They got no leadership. All they got was more politics, more right-wing shit, more like that. And, and, and it was a smart move by a person, secretary of the FEDA, FEDFA at the time, mm-hmm. when I had a chat with him, he, he had a plan for the future. The ironworkers had a plan was, was to merge with FIME, merge with the AW and yeah. be, be a big, beautiful union and carry on the same they did in the 50s. Mm. But members got smarter. Mem- members, mem- The reason why you, you buy a tram ticket is because you get on a tram. The reason why you pay electricity bills is because you get electricity. So if you don't get service, you don't pay fees and they weren't getting service. Right. And, you, and you don't have to be the smartest person in the world. You don't mm. have to be Bill Kelty or Bob Hawke. you just got to turn up Give it your best shot. Be honest, and 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 you win every day of the week with the members. Because yeah. there's a reoccurring theme here, isn't there? Right through the last forty years, about people wanting the union to act like a union. That's correct. And that is the industrial base. Forget the politics momentarily, but that is the base. Do you think? that expectation was there when you first went into the industry or did it develop over the period? Do you think there were any outstanding occurrences, events which helped that development? Let me give you one small example. When I started with the ironworkers, I was surrounded by certain people, right? DLP, I mean, mm. Bernard Lorenz, I mean, they were quite open. Yeah. DLP, Hollywell in his yeah. own way. Joe was an old DLP, yeah. Joe yeah. Reed, mm. but he was honest and straight, Joe. Joe was yeah. a different person, right? But they're all... Look, I, I went into the back room of the ironworkers, you know, my second day, and there was a, a storeroom, and I seen award books in there. I'd been a member of the ironworkers for 12 years and never ever seen an award book. So I pick up a few award books, put them in a box. As I'm walking out, Frank um, was a, was a, um, little Frank, little Frank. Yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, he, he he was the he, he was the secretary for about two months when, when the election was over. Yeah. Frank Gore. Frank Gore. Yes. Yeah, right. He said to me, "What are you doing with them?" I said, "I'm taking them out, going to hand them out the job." He said, "Listen, son, you never do that." I said, "Why?" He said, "They'll end up being as smart as us." They, they, they are members who pay union fees. They. they. Mm-hmm. So I took them back. 
I went in early the next morning at seven o'clock as they all walked at night, took a box out and had them out on the job. And, and some of the members were looking and saying, what's this? I said, this is a ward you've worked under since 1945, whenever, whenever it was created. Mm. They didn't know, they didn't see it. Mm. They were kept in the dark like mushrooms. Well, the example with the, well, it just wasn't the construction. I'll give you an example after the election. Martin Bright Steel, which was a yep. big mob. Up in Campbellfield. In Campbellfield. Yep. We went there with, Craig Johnson was book, went there and signed over, well, he already had the, the, uh, the tradesman. We went out there one day and we signed up the whole factory. The whole bloody factory, all doing, the whole lot of them, all joined up straight away. Employer called the coppers. Yeah, we were just walking around, signing them up as we were in the factory. He said, what are you doing here? You're trespassing. I said, no, I'm with the union official here. Signed a lot of them. So that was part of the people who were supporting us. So it just wasn't the construction workers. We, we, we were probably, places like BHP, we, we struggled. There was a bloke down there called Bill Dennis. So he was like... Uh, he was, he was the industrial relations, but he was he was like the FIA's recruiting manager. Yeah, the, and the, that bloke in Portland. The the place the place that hurt us the most, if if we to examine that, yeah. was undoubtedly the SECB in Latrobe Valley. Yeah. If you follow any, if you just simply follow the numbers, that's where we were hurt the hardest. Yeah. Um, but it should be appreciated. The ironworkers had fifteen thousand members at the time in Victoria spread across a multiple of industries, very large shops, um, like BHP plants, Alcoa, and all of those. We were never allowed anywhere near there to build up any sort of a profile. So it was quite easy to demonise us, um, and and uh, people would, would carry on about our left-wing leanings and, and what have you. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, we had a lot of good support, but our sort of background was in that Altona complex yeah. come construction, that's what we were um, better than them at um, and that that's the area that grew under mm. the FEDFA the FEDFA's rules were very broad and even when we first started this campaign to liberate our members they never sought to challenge the rules of the FEDFA because the rules were very broad and it could well have set a precedent that would have cost them a lot. They'd already lost carpenters uh, through their amalgamation with the OCNJ. That was part of the, the, the major plan to take on the then BWIU or CFMEU, whatever it was at the time. So they had a clear strategy. But their clear strategy was working with the boss to knock off the union that was annoying the boss, mm-hmm. whereas our strategy was supported by the members <laughs> because our interest was with improving the lot of the members. And you would have to say in any fair comparison, the wages and conditions on some of those jobs were the best wages and conditions in the country. Um, and other branch secretaries have freely acknowledged that. And it was... Uh, a process of one job following the other. So a lot of the conditions came out of places, you know, that you go back to the Westgate Bridge to find its origins, but in the Altona complex. I remember when fares and travel came in, it was $2.10 per day. We had that flown on at, at the Shell Refinery. I'm not quite sure what it is now, um, but it's a lot more than $2.10. I think we paid tax on it too. Mm. Um, it, it became an issue at some point where it became taxable. So it was doubled, 
through a campaign, if you yep. recall. And now it's worth substantial money. And all of those projects, although metal construction can be very peaks and troughs, you might not... I mean, the diesel was the largest decent job that I'm aware of, but, you know, next year or the year after, there'll be some other sort of project. And we were able, because we are part of the built-in industry group, which was another part of the success of the campaign, we were able to borrow, for want of a better term, conditions out of commercial construction, out of metal construction, out of civil construction, and combine them all into what belatedly became this middle mixed metal thing. And I say again, some of the conditions were the best in the country. And that was really an acknowledgement. In the early days, you might get one of these metal jobs every two years. And you might spend 12 months out of work in between. So the conditions were meant to, as near as possible, sort of carry you over. The death knell of the shutdowns, Altona complex, really was rapidly enhanced when Kennett deregulated the Department of Labor and Industry as it was at the time. The requirement to do free monthly boiler inspections, all of those sorts of things virtually disappeared overnight and so did the industry. I recall going to the Altona, uh, not the Altona, Williamstown Town Hall for Altona area mass meetings. Mm. People would be piled out in the streets. The hall would be filled, the balcony would be full, the the aisles were full, and there'd be people standing out in the foyer. And that that was the contractors. Mm. The Altona area agreement was renewed annually. It wasn't operators or anybody. No, no. It was renewed annually (coughs) at that stage, and then it became two-yearly, and I think eventually four-yearly. Uh, and they were heady days. And, you know, I recall the debates, um, why haven't we got air conditioning? The builders' labourers have got air conditioning. Why can't we have air conditioning? And it was a very democratic process, those mass meetings. And everybody else has reaped the benefits from those efforts. I do remember Jeff Kennett's intervention into industrial relations. And I do remember, uh, shall we say making a employment fatal decision to stand against the FIME uh, delegate at PRA and got done like a dinner because the boss made sure the votes went the other way but there was at that point I would have thought a fairly dramatic change of direction even for the building unions because people had to do it for themselves. A number of things changed, even even things like Incolink, in terms of some of the uh, insurances that were adopted in the early 90s, were about trying to make up for what had been taken away by the Kennett government. Is that your memory? Is that the sort of momentum that was building in terms of unions, particularly in the construction industry? A lot of the... When Kennett was... Um, knocking off um, those those sorts of conditions you, you're talking about. The the CFMEU really by that stage had begun to get its shit in in, the, in order. The builders labourers had come in. Um, Camo was very active, and we would regularly have protests at Parliament House. You'd recall, and inevitably. <coughs> The, the major employers, the major developers, builders, would come 
to the union with a plan to replace whatever had been taken and put it under the auspices of Inkerlink. So, you know, we things things that were taken away um, in respect to workers' compensation and, and all of those sort of things were transferred under uh, Inkerlink and there was a succession of them. So Inkerlink became more and more important. It started simply as a redundancy fund um, and now it's basically a welfare fund. It's a big difference. By contrast, if you go back to your early days in the industry, welfare was a site matter. There was no funds, there was no insurances other than workers' compensation. I would have thought that one of the things that built the attitudes on construction workers in metal and maintenance and so on was the fact that so many people got injured and that not just the big dramatic events like Westgate but major accidents on what are often minor jobs where people had to dip into the pockets. and a bit deeper than that. I mean, when, when we started to plan mixed metal jobs, and a lot of planning went into it, right, we had to do a deal with the metal workers. If we didn't do a deal with the metal workers, we're never going to win. Because basically the mixed metal in them days was AWU riggers, scaffolders, blah, 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 metal workers, and a few FUDFA crane drivers. That, that, was, the, that was the DMARC, right? So we had lots of meetings before we met with the metal workers. And, and I was at a meeting, Washo, this is what Washo raised this, I'll never forget it, that we give the metal workers the TAs. So they got the TAs and we got the riggers from the AWU. We also said to them that when we go home with wet weather, then you're coming home with wet weather. Then we also looked at Inkerlink because we basically, Inkerlink was all over the place. And then we looked at having Inkerlink into the agreement. So if you were building trades, or you were covered by Inkerlink, metal trades, and we're all in the one Inkerlink. So it was all part of um, an agreement, an industrial agreement, plus a social agreement. I mean, work doesn't stop at four o'clock on a Friday. Workers fall out of trees on weekends and things like that. So, it was, so we, we created an atmosphere with the metal workers where we had an industrial agreement, but we had a political agreement, them getting the TAs, not the AWO, and we had Inkerlink and all those other things that we never had before. So it was a whole package. And then we sat down with the metal workers. We sat down with the metal workers, and then they went away and had all... Then, then we came together... And then, that, then mixed metals, if it hadn't been for the metal workers, if they supported the AW, we would yep. never have achieved what we achieved because we would have been taking them on too. So we basically put a wedge between them and the AW and, the, and, the, and I think it still goes today, the metal workers and the CFMU work close on jobs still today. And this was 20 years ago, you know. But to push you on the subject, going back before 1990, Going back to when you first entered the industry, there was no welfare. No, nothing. You did it on the job with collections. Yeah. Yes. Was that a motivating element in trying to get the Inkerlink and that up? Or did that just flow from the fact that... I think it flowed from portability of long service leave. I think once we got the portability of a long yeah. service leave... It was in 75. And that was a major breakthrough, right? 
And that was something we thought, Jesus Christ, yeah. we've got portability that, as you know, you've you got, you got service to the industry, not to the employer. Yeah. Mm. Once we got that, then you could see attitudes changing. What and, 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 and don't forget, the BLs or, or, or the building industry had an inkling going back to D-Reg days, basically. That there was a system yeah, there, there was a disputes board, inkling, and, and we didn't have any of that with the iron workers. Mm-hmm. When we come with the FEDFA, it was there, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't in a big way. And then we get the metal workers were not in Inkalink. I mean, I can remember, I, 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 was, a, I was a director of OST. We had two super schemes. Norm Gallagher didn't want the iron workers the same super scheme. We had two super schemes. Yep. And now we've got one. Yep. You, you know, and, 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 it, and it's bigger than anybody thought it would only be. I mean, Daniel can tell you more about that, but we had two super schemes. We used to meet separately. You know, and we used to, as I said at the start, we used to get the BLs to finish a job and we went on. Now it just flows and there's no demarcations now on, on job. Maybe a few arguments for plumbers, but there's no arguments between riggers, TAs and tradesmen and carpenters. Every, everybody's happy to what, what they've got. And it all came from the start of the mixed metals and, and having a group with them. Uh, on, the, on the social side of it, though, when Tom talks about Ost and bus, in those early days... If you're on a building site and, what, and a mate got killed on the job, a collection would get taken up, and the widow would probably get whatever and came out. If you're a bloke, you got more than a bad bloke. Exactly. When <laughs> when um, bus That's came right. up in '84, uh, mm. was because of the burp allowance that the building industry got, and that sort of flowed into uh, bus as it was at the time. So that was a nine dollars. Then bus came into being. It was nine dollars because of the the wages freeze that uh, they couldn't get into the award. So the bus gets set up, $9 would go into super, dollar for administration, and a dollar was to be for insurance, which was 25 grand at the time. And it was a 24-hour coverage, which mm. in the industry, that, that was unheard of. Mm. And everybody was eligible. So you didn't get knocked back if you had a crook back. Everybody was eligible to have that money. Six months later, we campaigned in that time, in the 80s, about how we should have exactly the same conditions on construction with Ost. Jimmy O'Neill was a big factor in that. He, him, Tommy, myself, Noel, even within the ironworks, we pushed that extremely hard because we, we were in a super fund at the ironworkers. Mm. That was one of the things that they did to us when we first started. <coughs> After about six months, you had to go and have a medical. And once you got the medical, then, then you're in their super fund. In the construction industry, no, it came in, no medicals, everybody's eligible to join, and we wanted the same as the building industry. And it, in the building industry, we sort of sort of flowed into that. In the ironworkers, we had to fight every job. Mm. Now, whether it was at Portland, whether it was in Altana, whether it was in Geelong, every job had to be fought on a job-by-job basis. The amalgamation didn't come in between bus and ops to become CBUS till 93, mm. but the insurances kept increasing. So the idea of put the widow getting whatever came out of the hat, that was in there. It was made sure that there was an insurance policy as part of it. And I think that's one of the... If we look at the 80s and we think about what was gained in the 80s, I reckon the 80s was probably the golden era. I think once you start looking at the conditions that was won during the 80s for just about all unions, even, even in the time of wages freezes, that, that was the time. Shorter hours, superannuation redundancies, uh, income protection, all those sort of things came in. And I think it was because at those, during that time, there was a whole range of, of uh, militant union officials and activists on one side. Mm. 
but there was the, also a community attitude which was a, yeah. probably a bit more activist than it is today. Yeah. On, yeah. The, on the other side you had, you still had the, the group of unions who would, and I think we had this discussion the other day, there was a group of unions who just wanted business as usual, have the boss pay their union dues, and we talked about the shoppies, you know. You talk about the shopping, you know, for, for a, a political organisation... The biggest union in the country. Absolutely. <laughs> but do you know what? Everything was payroll deduction. Mm. I'll give you an example. People working at Myers, I think it's about four or 300 working there, if they wanted to get an organiser to come into the place, it was all payroll deduction, to get an organiser to come down there, it's two and three weeks wait because they were so busy till they got threatened about joining another union they're there the next morning. Because they didn't have anything. They didn't have yeah, bloody hopeless. Mm. But in Parliament, in political terms, that night, that day when we had to, the Coburg and we all got back into the ALP, we were in, a, in that uh, motel. There was about nine, ten of us. Mm. Of that, I reckon there were really four, three or four who ended up being politicians. I think Tristan Campbell was one. No Tommy says she, he's, she had to ring his wife, uh, her husband. <laughs> Tommy says, you're telling your, you're telling your husband you're in a room, motel room with nine other blokes. <laughs> and she was, oh, she was indeed horrified. <laughs> <laughs> it was very funny. The way Tommy told me, said, you're going to tell your husband that? <laughs> so I just should say so that point, because people don't necessarily listening to this no. in the future no, this understand... Is you, no, this is oh, you're, you're there, This yeah, is okay. for everyone's use. There was actually, in 85, a rejoining of the Labor Party by... Four unions. Four, four unions. unions. Yes. SDA. Yes. Yeah. Clarks. Clarks yeah. ASNJ. F-I-A. And FIA. Yep. And it was a fairly dramatic day. Yes, it was. I like tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> I love tomatoes. One of my favourite. You didn't even get close to getting hit. No. But anyway. Dick just... Ray stood next to me and he got splattered with a tomato. I didn't. <laughs> but the point <laughs> of that particular event was there was a continuing change yep. well, that was true. in Hawking. the nature Hawking. of the Labour movement. Yeah. What also followed from that period was two things. One, the Accord. Yeah. And two, the super union approach mm. promoted by Bill Kelty and the ACTU. Yeah. And Keating. And Keating, yeah. yes, because Keating then went on and got rid of the award as the primary document yeah. and introduced EBAs. in 93, yeah. EBAs, where my mind, the rich get richer and the poor just get absolutely left behind with no protection from the award. Having done that introduction, gentlemen, what do you think your experience was that flowed from that? Clearly some of it's been covered. Washo's got a wealth of information about the various things in agreements that change, but in the general flow of things, I would have thought a lot happened. Well, in terms of the construction area, I, I don't think there were a group of unions who did it better than the building unions by introducing patent agreements. And I recall at the time when it was first mooted, you know, everyone was horrified, or a large percentage of people were horrified, saying it couldn't be done and what have you. In terms of us, that was how we were used to doing business mm. in terms of the Geelong Area Agreement, Altona yeah. Area Agreement, Shell Refinery yeah. Agreement, yeah. 
uh, all of our major Pass projects, of all of our yeah. major shutdowns, all operated under project agreements. The only um, hiccup that I can remember was um, not long after, so the Hawke government, Keating government had come and gone, um, and then when Howard was elected, he really started to push his version of enterprise bargaining. So much so, we were told by, and I still remember who it was, Jeff Thomas, when he worked for Thies, um, at the um, Orica construction job, you can no longer do project agreements. The government will prohibit it. So we campaigned fairly staunchly there and ended up breaking through and, and picked up a, a, a project agreement. But again, in many ways to us, it was business as usual. But I think the credit lies with those who pursued the patent agreement line. Unfortunately, yes, you're right, it does leave a lot of people behind in the offsite areas um, and in the manufacturings where, they, where their you know, trade unionism is clearly discouraged. Um, and a lot of people are simply afraid and casualisation has taken over. So there's a pretty sad story out there. Our ability to organise these days seems to, you know, and you can't underestimate that conservative governments in this country have had a 30-year campaign of little by little taking away unions' ability to organise on behalf of their members and improve a lot of their members. And in many ways, some in the trade union movement should be condemned because they've allowed it to happen. I clearly recall a campaign when I was back on the job in Victoria they wanted to change one word in the Workers' Compensation Act and that was significant so if you had a heart attack you were covered under the old Workers' Compensation Act the government of the day wanted to change it to significantly caused by your employment we had statewide stoppages over that one single word unions were not afraid to break the law to organise hold mass meetings, mass rallies, and get results. Yet, over the last few years, unfortunately, um, the desire to take mass industrial action when it's clearly warranted has um, not been there. I'll give you a clear example. Unions' ability to organise relied upon their right of entry. When I first became a union official and I was given a copy of the award, which was probably the first time I'd ever seen one, I read the right of entry provision. I thought, how long, how good is this? How long has this been going on? You know? Now it's an impediment. You've got to jump through so many hoops. By the time you actually get into the, the workplace, the, um, you know, the problem's been taken care of. The person with the problem's been pissed off or sidelined or threatened. And, and it's, you know, unless you're prepared to break the law um, on the right of entry issue, your ability to organise is, is severely limited. And if you do break it, the penalties are no longer minor. Oh, no, I mean... Well, well let, but that was the plan, though, wasn't let, it? Let me tell Howard made a, a very bad mistake with work choices. Mm. With work choices, he attacked workers. He didn't attack unions. There was no penalty on unions, it was workers he attacked. Very bad mistake. And they learned by that. And then when they got in the second time, they attack unions and not workers. 
and they took our right away to organise. The, the right to organise, and then we had a campaign for the right to strike. An absolute disaster. We have got the right to strike. But you've got to go to court and get permission. Mm-hmm. In the old days, the permission was from the members. They went home. Now you've got to get permission. So they've completely taken the right to organise away, and they've taken the right to strike away from us. And, and that's why it, that's why it's harder today. Yeah, but that was also under the Fair Work Act, which was introduced by the Rudd government. Yes. Correct. Yeah. So we've we've had a period of the two major political parties coming together. My submission mm. to basically hinder the ability of trade unions and and their members to look after their interests, as they had done for. 150 years beforehand, since uh, 1856 when we got the eight-hour day. But one of the problems is, personally, I always believed it was very important to be in the ALP. I'm a life member of the ALP, right? Very important. But the ALP is a sideshow. The main event is the industrial side of things. That's the main event. But then you had, like, the Clarks and the Stormont and Packers and all those unions where politics was first and industrial was second. And, and so when the ALP came in, state or federal, all they done was deals for pre-selection and, the, and, and they sold people down the road just to get pre-selection and power within the ALP. Where, where other unions, and I'm talking about metal workers, iron workers, you know, and, and certainly some of the CFMU today, politics is important, but it's a sideshow. Mm-hmm. It's a sideshow. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. So if the unions were to reorganise, surely, in my view... That is the issue to reorganise around. I'd go as far as to suggest that the original right of entry provisions didn't come from nowhere, that it didn't come from the good grace of the employers. In fact, when um, I think it was when Keating was the Prime Minister, the right of entry had a uh, provision in it that um, would threaten employers with uh, prosecution if they hindered a union official. And put yourself in a worker's position. He feels under threat. Uh, they're highly casualised. Uh, you never see the union official uh, because you're not allowed to come in. Uh, why would you? Why would you be a member of a union that won't fight for itself, for its own existence, for its own ability to represent you? Uh, in my view, the union movement needs to look at campaigning for right of entry and start again. But sadly, the the willingness doesn't appear to be there. If we put all of our faith, as Tommy said, in the political process, we'll get crumbs. If we are prepared to back that up with some good old-fashioned mass meetings and rallies and such, history has shown that that's when we've advanced. You have been listening to part one of this Creatures of the Industry interview with Tommy Watson, Danny Gardner and Noel Washington. Part two will continue next week. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, the Concrete Gang's fill-in show for this summer, and there will be more interviews to come over the following weeks and hopefully an ongoing series well into the future. Thank you for listening. For mighty profits for the greedy MBA.